We are about halfway through the tribulation, things start to get even more interesting. So I'm excited to get into this. Those of you still coming in, just make yourself at home. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us the freedom in this country to gather, to study your word. I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say in your revelation to us. There are some powerful lessons that you want to teach us. There are powerful faith builders in this and I pray that you would help us to increase our faith. Pray that you'd be with everyone that is with us tonight in whatever capacity that you would be in their lives, that they'd feel your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would walk with us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I mention this every week, but in case you're new, if you text questions to that number during class, like to answer questions as uh, many as we can. Let me kind of tell you where we are uh, the breakdown of the book of Revelation, I repeat these things because the goal of this class is not to have you believe a particular view of the book of Revelation, it's to equip us to be able to understand it, not be intimidated by it, that you will be able to read it and get some of the, for all the different views of Revelation, everybody agrees on the key, key elements, and that's what I think we've been missing when we're afraid to dive into this book. Here's how it's structured. First three chapters, Jesus comes to John and dictates letters to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. So when I say Asia, we're talking about in that era, so that would be modern-day Turkey. And so he has instruction for those churches. Chapters 4 through 19 are called the Tribulation. And that is because in that time there are visions, apocalyptic visions, meaning that they are visions of very wild uh, sounds and sights and creatures, but they're very symbolic. They're trying to convey very concrete information to us. Chapters 4 through 19 is structured by a series of three sets of seven visions and judgments. The seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. And so there's not uh, coincidence in that structure either. So chapters 4 through 19 are the tribulation, and depending on your view, as to what's happening in that tribulation, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then chapter 20 is the judgment and thousand-year reign, which is one of the most hotly debated chapters in the Bible. And then chapters 21 and 22 are new heaven and new earth. So it's a pretty simple structure. Let's talk about how people view this book. The four views on the tribulation. Now I'm talking about chapters 4 through 19. This is really pretty simple if you think about it. All these events and visions and actions and plagues and battles and all kinds of things in chapters 4 through 19, people answer this question differently. When will these things happen? Depending on your answer to that question is how you will approach it. So for example, the preterist view, and by the way, all these are orthodox Christian views of the book of Revelation, and they have all been held uh, still today, so there are people who see the book of Revelation, the tribulation in those four ways. But over history, some have gone, become more popular or less popular. But these are all orthodox ways to look at it. Preterist basically said all those visions in chapters 4 through 19 were describing the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's already happened. Or potentially the fall of the Roman Empire. But either way, those things have already happened in the past. Historicist says, no, these things, chapters 4 through 19, is kind of a secret coded roadmap to history, all the way from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. The third, the futurist says, no, actually, chapters 4 through 19 is in the future. It hasn't started happening yet. And in fact, it's going to happen in the future in a specific seven-year period of time. And tonight, you'll understand why uh, futurists think that the chapters 4 through 19, the tribulation, will be seven years. We'll finally get to why they think that. And then finally, the symbolic or idealist view says, actually, these didn't happen in any specific time. They're recurring ideas that have happened many times through history, may happen many times in the future. So the ways people approach this Chapters 4 through 19 really just breaks down to when do you think these things are going to happen? And we're going to look at uh, different views as we go through it. So, last time we heard six trumpets sound, and boy did bad things happen. About a third of the earth got burned up, uh, about a third of the people died. This is in chapters 8 and 9. 
And just like the seals, after the sixth one was open, after the sixth trumpet sounds, there's an interlude before the seventh. There's some things that happen in this little, think of it as a commercial break. You know, now we break to a commercial. And so we're in the commercial a little bit between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And some similar things are gonna happen. Now let me tell you what's gonna happen in chapters 11 and 12. We are gonna meet two witnesses. We're gonna meet a dragon and a woman about to give birth and we're gonna have a war in heaven. So let's dive in and see what's happening between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Chapter 11, verse one, I was given a reed, this is John speaking, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers there. But exclude the outer court, that's typically been the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so before we talk about this, I wanna talk about the 42 months a little bit. 42 months, this is a significant number and it's gonna show up a lot. Uh, 42 months is three and a half years. You'll also see it expressed as 1,260 days. The Jews had a 360 day year, traditionally, and so if you take 360, just do the math, 1,260 days is three and one half years. So three and a half is a big number. And so what it's saying here is that the Gentiles are gonna trample on the holy city for 42 months, for three and a half years. So what's happening here? Well, the historicists who see this happening over time and the symbolic, which sees just an idea here, Again, they all believe this is true. They're just asking the question of when, what do these symbols refer to? Both of those views typically look at this and say, wait a minute. Back when we, after the sixth seal was opened, there was a pause and an angel came down from heaven and said, everybody stop all the mayhem until I have sealed the people of God on their forehead. And he sealed 144,000. We talked about the symbolism of that. But the point I wanna make now is God said, wait just a minute. I know where every one of my people are in the midst of this worldwide cataclysm. Historicists and symbolics say, this is the same thing. In other words, this is part two after the sixth trumpet. This idea of go measure the temple and count the worshipers there is another way of saying, I identify every one of my people in the midst of, again, even worse cataclysms happening as the trumpet sounded. So this is a way of God marking his people. It's a way of reassuring this that no matter what you're going through, I know where you are and I know who you are. Now futurists, on the other hand, see this, and there's a little split here. Futurists have a camp called dispensational futurists, and I won't talk a lot about that, but I'll, and I'm really painting with a broad brush here, but basically I want you to know that the dispensational version of futurists differs from traditional futurists mainly by the role of the Jewish people in the end times. So if you think about like the Left Behind series, you'll notice in that series the Jewish people are going to basically become Christians in the end time. Again, I'm painting with a broad brush here. That's a dispensational view, meaning God's not through with the Jews and they're gonna come into play in the end time. Traditional futurists would just say, this is all happening in the future and the Jews are just like anybody else. Okay, so, but the dispensational future, see what's happening here is the temple is going to be rebuilt in the tribulation. And they see this as a little flashback to the beginning. In other words, the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock, that uh, Islamic uh, site is, that mosque, is gonna be torn down and the Jews are gonna rebuild the temple. And if you get online, you will read uh, people that will say that the Jews already have all the material ready to go and that they're ready to build it at any given time. And uh, you know, just kind of the idea of the Jews are gonna rebuild the temple. And that's what this is referring to. The temple's being measured because it's gonna be rebuilt. The three and a half years breaks down in this way. They say in the first half, after the temple's rebuilt, the first half of the tribulation, three and a half years, the Jews are gonna offer sacrifices there. But in the second half, three and a half years, the Antichrist, who we will meet uh, personally next week, the Antichrist is going to 
kick the Jews out and do some very idolatrous things in the temple. And so that vision says, this is saying, this is talking about in the future, in the seven year tribulation, the temple is gonna be rebuilt. This is a great time to flash back and kind of give you an idea of why. Why do futurists look at this this way? Now I'm with the futurists, seven years in the future, and specific antichrist, everything's happening in seven years. I wanna take you back to the book of Daniel. And time doesn't permit me to spend a lot of time on this, although this is a fascinating prophecy. Okay, remember Daniel? We'll call it roughly 500 years before the time of Christ. He's prophesying about something that he does not understand. He does not know what this means necessarily. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and the holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, something big is going to happen in seventy sevens. So let me tell you what that means. Uh, a seven is a week. I mean, when you say a seven, that's seven days. So you have 70 weeks, and you'll hear this prophecy called Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. 70 sevens, a seven is just another way of like saying a week. So, but in prophecy, it's very common that a day stands for a year. So this prophecy is actually not about 70 weeks or 490 days, it's actually about 490 years. Does that make sense to everybody? This is gonna become really significant in a second. So let me finish reading it. He said, know this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that happened in about the time, a little before the time of Nehemiah. We just preached about Nehemiah this weekend. So several hundred years before the time of Christ. From the time of that decree, and the, there will be uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. And the temple will be rebuilt in a trench and in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, that word is literally Messiah, will be cut off and will have nothing. Okay, let me stop there for a second. So leaving the nuances out of this, you have 69 sevens. So you basically have 400 plus years. Remember, a day is a year from the time the rebuilding of the temple till the time the anointed one is cut off. And if you do the math on this, it, it appears very suggestive that that time period was from the time that the temple could be rebuilt until the crucifixion of Jesus. Now people argue about this a little bit, but if you do the math, it looks like that is a very suggestive thing. So futurists are gonna understand it this way, that the 69 sevens in other words, that 400 some years was from the time uh, the, re the temple said the Jews could go back until Jesus. Then there's a pause. And now I want you to think we move forward in time for the rest of this. The people of the ruler who will come, think Antichrist now, will destroy the city, think Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, think temple. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. We're in the middle of a big old war here until the end and desolations have been decreed. That's kind of like, you know, remember when you were a kid and your mom would say, wait till your dad gets home and you're in big trouble. Desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So the antichrist, now the one seven is seven years, isn't it? That's all we've got left of this prophecy. We've now moved to the, to the future. That's why the tribulation is thought to be seven years. That one last seven, seven days, which implies seven years, is hanging out there. And it appears it's gonna happen when this ruler is gonna come. He's gonna make a covenant with Israel for seven years. But in the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he'll put an end to sacrifice. He'll kick the Jews out and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. In other words, he will put an idol in there. In other words, he will he'll profane the temple, if you will. So that prophecy basically, again, I'm, I'm not going into a lot of detail, but that prophecy is basically why futures think there's a seven-year tribulation, and why in the middle of it, the Antichrist is going to break his deal with the Jewish people. So back to the book of Revelation. So when you see this be, get to be measured here, 
that's why you're, it's being interpreted that way. It's interpreting it in light of the book of Daniel. This is a handy little chart. Let me just kind of show you a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, we're right here, chapters 11, 12. We're right in the middle of the seven years. If you're a futurist, if you're a futurist, we're right in the middle of the seven years of the tribulation. So what's happening here between the sixth trumpet and seventh trumpet is happening three and a half years in. This chart just happens to tell you what all of the seals were. It tells you what happened when the trumpet sounded. We have yet to get to the bowls of wrath. And uh, there's the abomination of desolation that's set up in the temple. But this is basically Daniel's 70th week. It's that last seven years. And so not everybody thinks that that's how you interpret that prophecy of Daniel. In other words, symbolic view would look back to Antiochus Epiphanes back in the time of the Maccabees and say it was fulfilled then. But leaving that aside for a minute, futurists will see it in the, in the future, and that's where the seven years comes from of the tribulation. Question? So the question is, do you think God has a set date or is he waiting for all these circumstances to come together? Um, well, if he's waiting on us to work this out, he could be waiting a long time. So <laughs> most people would answer the question, yes, he has a set date. And if anything, you've seen anything through the tribulation so far, you see Satan's gonna show up tonight. So you're gonna realize who's behind what's going on here. But he's not really in charge of what's happening. Satan is doing a lot of bad stuff, but you see these visions in heaven and God is in, he is the sovereign. Everything here is moving where God wants it to move. So things are happening in God's design to happen when God wants, even though Satan is a, an agent out there trying to, uh, to cause trouble. So in other words, what I'm saying is God's sovereignty is so cool that Satan can be doing all this stuff to try to make things go bad and still, it works out the way and when God wants it to. That is what's really cool about God's sovereignty, is he can do it without taking the ability to make choices away from us. So after this, after the measuring of this temple, now, and so this was a good time for us to go back to Daniel and tell you why the seven years and the three and a half makes a lot of sense. But what happens next? He says, I will give my power to two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So for three and a half years, they will prophesy. They are prophets. They are basically proclaiming the word of God. They're in sackcloth. That is a symbol, and it's all been all through the Old Testament. Sackcloth is a sign of repentance, of mourning. Uh, every time you see someone repent and turn back to God and say, I you know, I, I was wrong. I confess my sin. When I turn back to God, they sit in sackcloth. That's the sign there. They're preaching repentance. They're preaching to people, turn away from evil and turn back to God. So these two witnesses are preaching repentance. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they want. So you get this kind of terrible thing. You've got this, if you're a futurist, you've got a war going on. You have a nuclear war. You've got Russia and their Arab allies. The Chinese just joined in last week and they're all attacking Israel. And nuclear weapons have been exchanged. And you begin to see this nuclear winter. This is kind of a futurist view of what's happening here this tribulation. And in the midst of that, you get these two figures who come in and begin preaching to the whole world repentance, turn away from this, turn back to God. And these, they're described with some very apocalyptic kind of descriptions. So let's talk about what this means. First, let me tell you what the two olive trees and the two lampstands refer to. Just make a note of this and go read it. Zechariah, it's a book in the Old Testament, chapter four, verses one through 14. So when you know that, when you see this, you go, oh, that's Zechariah chapter 4, 1 through 14. What was Zechariah talking about in chapter 4? A historical event. If you remember when the Persian king said to the Jews after he conquered the Babylonians, he said, you guys can go back to Jerusalem if you want. I don't have any heartburn with you worshiping your God. Just pay your taxes. 
a guy named Zerubbabel and a guy named Joshua. Zerubbabel was going to be the governor. He's a Jew. And Joshua is going to be the high priest. He's a Jew. They go back and they begin trying to rebuild the temple and pull their people back together. That's what's going on in Zechariah. And so these two witnesses are out there preaching, come back to God, because that's exactly what Zerubbabel and Joshua were doing. So that's a, a, a shorthand way to tell you what's going on here, because they would know this Old Testament story. The other thing is very specific. Uh, this is a neat little picture from a thousand-year-old manuscript. But the two witnesses, one of them has the ability to say there will be no rain. Just anybody remember a biblical character who Jesus said, shut up the heavens and it did not rain for three and a half years. Who was that? Elijah, the prophet Elijah. You can read about him in the book of First Kings in the Old Testament. Beautiful, powerful story. Along, starts along about chapter 16 or so. You read the Elijah story, he confronted the evil king who was turning God's people. This is Ahab and Jezebel. They were turning God's people away. And he came to God's people. He said, you need to repent. And as a sign that I came from God, there's going to be a drought for three and a half years. This sounds like an Elijah character. Turning the water to blood sounds a lot like another big character. Hero, feature film, Moses. Yes. So Moses, what does he do? He confronts the Pharaoh and he says, God said, you're going to let my people go. He's going to take them to the promised land. And he executed judgments on Egypt. All those plagues were God's judging the gods of Egypt, saying, your gods are not real gods. Turn to me and worship me. So this is an Elijah figure and a Moses figure. Some people think this is literally Elijah and Moses coming in the tribulation. Others say, no, what he's trying to say is both Elijah and Moses and Zerubbabel and Joshua preached, repent, there's still time to turn to God. So these two witnesses are preaching repentance. Does that make sense? The symbolism is pretty clear once you think about what it's trying to do. It's trying to use these characters to give you an idea. So those are the two witnesses, and they begin to preach, and they're very powerful. Now, when they finish their testimony, this is really powerful, because the world's trying to kill these guys the whole time, but who's, in, who's really in control here? God's in control here. They're about to get killed, but not until God says, they preached what I wanted them to preach. God is in charge of this thing. So when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, you remember the abyss with the uh, recently in the tribulation where we had all of these demons coming up out of the abyss where they've been locked up. They will attack them. They will overpower and they will kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Many people think that's Jerusalem then. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation, every people, tribe, language, and nation, what does the number four signify? All created things. In other words, the whole world is going to have a party because they've all been convicted by what they've said. Will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other's gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. How they tormented them? By telling them the truth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Okay, that's pretty cool. So what's happening here? God's in charge, and his people, his witnesses come and preach repentance. But at the end of that time, the forces of Satan kill them. Refuse to bury them. So I'm going to give you two views of what's happening here. First is historicists. Historicists think all of these things are a roadmap to history. And if you remember where we've been, we're almost to the Protestant Reformation. So historicists think uh, Luther and Calvin and John Wesley and people like that were historicists. They said those two witnesses are basically correlating in history to the people who stood up to say the Catholic Church was wrong, right before the Reformation, right before uh, Luther and Calvin, the Catholic Church was killing a lot of people who were standing up saying, you are not doing what is right. And so they see 
this as referring to that time period of history. In, uh, see if I get my dates right here, in 1151, I think it was the Third Lateran Council that, uh, or 1179, declared war on heretics. So think Reformation, about 1500, 1179, Catholic Church said, if you don't agree with the Catholic Church, you're a heretic, and we declare war on you. And so they forbade heretics from being buried. They wouldn't get a good Christian burial. 1231 AD, a little bit later, is when the Inquisition started happening, where people got tortured and killed for not believing the right thing. So historicists say this is pointing to that time in history, because remember, they want all these things to, to track through history. The uh, futurists, this is kind of interesting, because look where it says at the end, come up there, and they went up to heaven in the cloud. Where are we in the tribulation? We're in the middle. In chapter four, before any of the bad stuff happened, some people believe there was a rapture. All the Christians, all the believers on the earth were taken up into the air in a rapture, if you believe in, in, in a rapture, as being a separate event from the second coming. And so most futurists do. They think that the Christians left. If you think they were raptured before the tribulation starts, meaning chapter four, you're called a pre-tribulation rapture, pre-trib. If you think it's happening right now, that what that means is God's taking all of his faithful people off of the earth, then you're called a mid-tribulation rapture because we're in the middle of the tribulation. There's also a post-trib rapture, which my attitude is, what's the point? I mean, <laughs> if you gotta go through all the bad stuff, hey, just leave me here. You know, I already got the kids in a soccer league and we're, we're good, we're settled. But this is mid-tribulation rapture uh, if you're looking at it as a futurist. So, the uh, dispensationalists see these two witnesses, by the way, as uh, converting Jews. That the Christians are gone, dispensational futurists think the rapture happened in chapter four, so the only people now are people that, that are Christian convert, and that the Jews, God's gonna send some evangelists to convert the Jews to believe in Christ. So futurists think that's who these two witnesses are and that then this is uh, basically the rapture happening. So I'll stop right there in the middle of the tribulation while they're raptured. What questions do we have? Um, are the three and a half days in this passage referencing days or are we talking years here as well? Good question. Are the three and a half days in this passage, you know, where they lay in the street talking about years or days, it seems logical it must be days because the whole tribulation, you know, there only is only seven years. So most people interpret, they get this as interpretive, as okay, that's three and a half days. Do they mean it's literally three and a half days? Well, it's some short period of time, but they just love those numbers. You know, three and a half is just a special number, partly because it's half of seven. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. So three and a half is uh, not quite there, right? So, for a short period of time, but most people think of that as days, that they are gloated over. It's considered a sign of contempt to not bury someone in Middle Eastern culture. And so this is a gloating over, like finally we shut these prophets up and then all of a sudden they're resurrected, okay? Symbolic point of view looks at all this, by the way, and says this is the church through all of time. The church has always been about preaching repentance. Let me give one more and then I'll talk to you about a couple of summary ideas. Now finally, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. If you remember the seals, six seals were opened, bad stuff happened. Seventh one was opened, bad stuff doesn't happen, it just announces something else to come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones, we talked about them a few weeks ago, fell before God on their faces and worshiped him saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, for destroying those who destroy the earth. So. If you are a futurist, you're basically just seeing the end of this time period. In other words, an announcement from God pronouncing judgment on the world, and there's still three and a half years of tribulation. 
symbolic view, and I'm not trying to persuade you of this, but I, this is not one people are very knowledgeable about, and I want you to understand why they think this. That sounds like the end of the world. That sounds like God is coming. He says, the, you, you know, your reign has started on the earth. The earth has now become the kingdom of God. If you remember when we opened the seventh seal, it sounded like the end of the world, like the stars went away and the earth was rolled up and the Lord began to rule. What symbolic will say is the seven seals was the whole story of God redeeming his people, Satan rebelling against God and evil in the world, and God overcoming it and judging the world. That was story was told in the seven seals. He just got through retelling the story again in the seven trumpets, and they're going to tell the same story again in the seven bowls of wrath. Symbolic sees this as a beautiful story that's arranged with literary skill and art. It's true. It's telling you the, the struggle of the church against evil to preach repentance and God's ultimate judgment of evil. It's just telling you the story three times, which in Hebrew means emphasis. Holy, holy, holy means absolutely the most holy. 777 means absolutely the most perfect judgment of God. So symbolic doesn't see these as specific events necessarily. It's just telling you the story, very encouraging story. So let me draw a couple of quick lessons before we go on to the next set of things. So our seven trumpets are done. We've met the two witnesses and God's call for repentance. A couple of interesting lessons here. One is, think about those witnesses. God did not deliver them from trials or from death. He delivered them through death. In other words, they prophesied what God wanted them to prophesy. They preached repentance, turned to the truth, and God made it so that they would preach. But at the end, he doesn't just snatch them away. They died. It appeared that evil had defeated them. But what did he do? Raised them from the dead. Do you see the story of the cross in this? What happened when Jesus was crucified? Everybody thought, it's over. Wow. Evil has won. And three days later, no, evil hasn't won. God brings us through trials does not keep us from trials, and he never promised that he would. The witnesses are a great little Christ picture, just like your and my lives are a little Christ picture. You know, we battle against trials and evils and the forces of evil in this world as we try to be faithful witnesses to Christ, and God will deliver us through death, and he will raise us from the dead. That's what this is saying. And if you're a Christian then, when you're facing literally being put to death for being a Christian, that is so comforting to know that my God, he, they can kill me, they can burn me at the stake, they can do whatever they want, but they cannot keep me from being resurrected and being reunited with Christ. That was a powerful message then. I think it's a powerful message now for us as well. Well, after this, another vision happens. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he could devour, he could kill her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That's code. That word is used all over the Old Testament to talk about the Messiah. This is Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman then fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for... You guessed it, 1,260 days. So this is fascinating. So let's see who are the players in this thing. What's, what's going on here? All right, first, it's pretty easy to see who the woman is because she's giving birth to the Messiah. So most people understand this. This is Israel, and this is the Messiah coming from Israel. In other words, Jesus was born a Jew, and God chose the Jews as his chosen people and used them and gave them a mission. And the culmination of that mission was he would bring the Messiah from the Jews. So the woman and the child are Israel and the Messiah. The dragon, you're going to find out in the next, another couple of verses, they tell you who the dragon is. The dragon is Satan. But I want to show you how he's described. 
So first of all, we've got seven heads. That's weird, I admit. Okay, heads is where your brain is. Heads in general are symbols of authority. And seven is the number of completeness or perfection. And so this beast, this Satan, has all earthly authority. In other words, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this present world. Now he's going to be judged and he's not going to be the ruler of this world forever, but he has authority over the world. Ten horns. Does anybody remember what horns stand for? We've seen a lot of horns. Power, strength, exactly. Uh, and so ten is the number of completeness for a human being. So ten is very, very powerful, very militarily powerful. So a lot of authority, a lot of power, and seven diadems. This is a different word. I know they translate it crowns, and it is, does mean crown, but it's a different word. When those, if you remember when the saints, when the elders were given crowns, that is a different word. That's like the crown that you were, the crown of life for completing the race. This is a diadem. This is like what you crown a king with. It means authority. And so you've got seven heads, all authority, ten horns, tons of power, seven crowns. You are the political master of the world. And so that's why, particularly futurists see this Satan and his Antichrist, who's coming next week, is, has all the political authority. So Russia, the Chinese, the Arab allies, all attacking Israel are all done so under a one big world power. All authority is given. And the power behind that throne, you're being shown here, is Satan. So that's the significance of that vision, is we're describing them. I admit that looks kind of weird, but once you see the code, you go, oh, I see what's happening here. This is basically saying that Satan has the power in this world, or seems to have the power in this world, and he is trying to persecute God's people. <laughs> Specifically, by the way, think about that. Who tried to kill the Messiah as he was born? Herod. Herod killed all the babies under two years old. What's he trying to do? And so many people will say, yep, that's exactly right. Satan tried to kill the Messiah through his henchman, his agent, his evil ruler, Herod. And so they see, yeah, that makes sense. That's what's going on here. This is the, the devil trying to squelch and destroy the church. Great little picture, by the way, William Blake. This is the great dragon hovering over the woman who is defenseless, which by the way, that's another great theme. Jesus comes into the world as a baby. He's defenseless, and yet Herod and all his armies and Satan and all his power cannot destroy him. Hence, he was snatched up to God. So you just see again the kind of the story of the gospel playing out here. Then after this, uh, oh, by the way, let me tell you what they think is happening with this devil. The futurists think we're in the middle of a war, right? You got everybody having a war on Israel, and Israel is now retreated into the southern desert. About half the nation of Israel is just desert in the south, you know, the Negev. And so Israel's being hard-pressed here. And the forces of the world, Israel's not winning this war, and they've retreated down into the desert in the south of Israel. I'll tell you what happens to them in just a minute. Symbolic point of view says this is the birth of Christ. This is God overcoming Satan through the birth of Christ. The cross of Christ defeated Satan. It's just a matter of time. But Satan has no hold on us anymore because of the forgiveness of the blood of Christ. Then there was war in heaven. So we'll finally get to our war and why God allows it. So now we flash back. You see, Satan's come on to the scene. And you see what Satan's trying to do in the world. He's trying to stop the Messiah. He's trying to stop this plan of redemption. He wants every one of us to be his slaves. But here comes and he doesn't get the Messiah and then at the cross, he knows he's defeated and he is enraged. And he rebels against God. And so there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. By the way, I'm going to go back one just to tell you, uh, point something out I forgot to point out. You see where the dragon's tail sweeps a third of the stars from the sky? That is, by the way, the only place that... that is substantiates the idea that when Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels were cast out with him. That's where that comes from, by the way. So here, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. 
The great dragon was hurled down. Who is the dragon? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Devil means deceiver and Satan means accuser. Satan is always described as the one who accuses you of your guilt and the one who deceives you. Think Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says, he was hurled to the earth and his angels were hurled with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Three adjectives talking about the divine, the kingdom, the power, and the glory of God. And the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. In other words, Satan has been in heaven accusing God, saying, you cannot save these people. These people are not worth it. Think story of Job, right? Oh, you think Job is righteous? Job isn't righteous. He doesn't love you. He just wants what you'll give him. That's Satan. He's been accusing us. He's the accuser of brethren. Sometimes he accuses us in our mind, doesn't he? Or so it seems when we feel that shame and guilt, that's us responding to that accusation. And the only thing that takes that away is turning to God and confessing that. And he can make that right. So the accuser of our brothers has been hurled down. They overcame him, this is interesting, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So what's happening here in this uh, passage? Satan has been unleashed on the earth. So there's war in heaven as Satan openly rebels against God. Why does God allow that? Here's the interesting question. Why does God allow us to choose and do evil on this earth? Because God has given us some measure of will. I mean, when you look at evil deeds, you can say, why does God allow that? I actually flip it around and say, why do we choose that? Angels appear to have will, the ability to hate, the ability to love, the ability to be faithful, the ability to rebel. And so Satan has decided he wants to be God. The Jews, by the way, have an interesting take on this. This is a Jewish uh, legend. They said that when God created humanity, all the angels looked on and marveled. But Satan said to God, they're puny creatures. They're not even as powerful as we are. I am not going to serve them. And he, God said, yes, these are going to be my chosen people. I created them. I love them. I'm going to bring them here. He talks about you created man a little lower than the angels. This is Psalm 8. But you glorified him. And they said that Satan was so filled with rage and envy, he said, no, I will never serve these people. In fact, they will serve me. And so there's some truth in that idea. Satan is the ruler of this world. He wants to deceive us into literally serving him by sin. So you get this idea of, of God allowing them to choose. And so Satan rebels. And so he's cast out of heaven, and there's a war in heaven between Michael, the archangel, fighting against the other uh, angels. There's an interesting passage in Daniel again. Now, this is Daniel prophesying to the Jews, but most people would say he's also talking about this incident. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations. Meaning, looking at this saying, Daniel doesn't realize it, He's seeing the tribulation. He's talking about this tribulation. And he says, at that time, your protector, Michael, will rise up. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So they see that as Daniel getting a sign of what's happening, that Satan wants to destroy us, but Michael defeated him, and that we will be preserved by God. Interesting thing here is how are we going to defeat Satan? This is really pretty interesting because Satan is going to be destroyed. I want you to look at these two things. He said, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And there is a powerful lesson in this. And simply this, we don't fight evil. Remember Ephesians chapter 6? That's Paul saying, our battle isn't really against flesh and blood. And we go, yeah, it is. We got evil kings, we got bad armies, we got 
Kim Jong-un trying to you know, unsettle the world and threatening us with nuclear annihilation. And Paul says, no. He says, that's not really what's going on. He said, our battle is against the spiritual powers in the heavens. In other words, Satan is behind these forces. Satan is a destroyer. And so Paul said, I know it seems like you're being oppressed by the Roman Empire, or fill in the blank, whatever it is that we feel like is oppressing us, our circumstances, our life, etc. He said, really, there's something cosmic going on here. That's what this vision is telling you, is that behind what's happening in this world, there are forces of evil and God's plan for good, and everyone will serve God or sin. Because in this book, everyone's going to get sealed. Right now, the people of God have been sealed. Next week, everybody who serves Satan is going to get sealed. They're going to get the mark of the beast. And so God is saying, this is what's really going on behind what you see. You see, the book of Revelation is trying to explain to you and me what's really happening in my life. If I look at my life, I think it's a series of ups and downs and setbacks and struggles and relational problems and grief over death and disease and and suffering, and you go, man, what is the meaning of this? The book of Revelation says, I'm going to tell you exactly what the meaning of this is. And here's the good news. If you serve Christ, this is not your end. So this book of Revelation is trying to give us a bigger perspective on what's going on. And if you are in the, in the middle of a disease or suffering or, in their case, persecution, you desperately need to know what's the big picture here. Because your world, suffering makes our world shrink, very small. And so the book of Revelation is trying to say, God is going to reveal to you what is really going on. So take heart. So that's what's happening here. Interesting thing is they overcome because of what Jesus did. Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. And now our sin is no longer counted against us and Satan has no power over us. And the word of their testimony... That's basically the preaching of the truth of the gospel, is believing and preaching the truth of the gospel. So it's really interesting. Our holy war is fought with our faithfulness. It's not fought with guns or knives or even words other than the testimony of the truth. And then finally, it takes a couple questions here in a second, but I want to finish this out by saying what happened then. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That's either all the believers, he's mad at the church, or in the future, he's trying to destroy Israel, which there's a big old war going on if you're a futurist and Israel is being destroyed. But watch what happens. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Two really interesting things here. We had a question last week is, where is the United States in all this? We got a global war going on. What are we doing, right? Well, we're all watching Netflix series. That's what we're all doing. It's what we're doing anyway. Seriously, you've got, if you're a futurist, you've got this nuclear war going on in the Middle East and everybody's trying to destroy Israel. What's the United States doing? What's the symbol for the United States? Eagle. So. I'm not telling you this is necessarily what this means. I'm just saying if you're a futurist, you like this because it is symbolic, so futurists will understand, of the United States coming in to rescue Israel, joining the war on their side. So when you hear futurists talk about the war and Russia and China and against Israel and nuclear weapons and all these bad things that are happening or kind of nuclear fallout, and then the United States enters to rescue God's people. That's not how historicists see this. It's not how symbolic sees it, but it fits that narrative of the futurist view, if that makes sense. Then the last thing is the time, times, and half a time. You're gonna see that again. You can have three and a half years, 120 day, or 1,260 days. Think about a time being a year. A year, years, and half a year. Time, times, and half a time is a real old-timey, Old Testament way of saying three and a half years. Okay, So you just see these three and a halves all over the place. So basically, the woman was taken away from the wrath of the dragon to the desert where she would be taken care of for three and a half years out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river trying to overtake the woman. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. 
Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. This is why others don't think these are Jews. Listen to how he describes the offspring. Those who obey God's commandment and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, Satan hates you and he wants to destroy you. That's my uplifting thing for this week, okay? That's the uplifting part. I just want you to go about your life this week knowing that, hey, Satan hates my guts and he's looking for ways to destroy me. That's what Revelation says. And you know what? That's kind of our experience sometimes. Certainly the experience of the church. Church has always met persecution. I, I would suggest we're not very far away where we are now. So let me pause there. That's kind of the end of that little story. Satan's trying to stop Jesus. He doesn't. So he tries to stop the people of God, and yet he can't stop them. He's enraged, and he thinks, my time is short. Christ has defeated me at the cross. I'm going to cause all kinds of mayhem while I can. So, questions? I have a couple of questions about Satan in particular. Um, we know that God is in control, and it seems fairly reasonable that Satan might have figured that out by now. So is, is he just doing what he can, taking whatever God allows him to do, or does he really think that he may actually change the outcome of Revelation? Yes, does Satan think he can win? You know, why is he continuing to do this? Two thoughts. Number one, in the, the great middle, uh, middle Ages, there were a lot written about this, and one of the great lines attributed to Satan, this is not in the Bible, this is, this is in a written literary work, is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's attributed to Satan. So the point is, is his pride. The second thing is, I tell this story a lot, I'll tell it to you kind of quickly, because this explains a lot of things in life. So once upon a time, there was a scorpion, and he was trying to make his way to a distant place, and he came to the side of a river. And scorpions can't swim, so he can't get across the river, and he's stymied. He's like, how am I going to continue my journey? And he sees a frog swimming by, and this frog swims up and stays a little bit away because he's a little bit afraid of the scorpion. And, he, and the scorpion says, Mr. Frog, he said, uh, would you be willing to let me ride on your back to get to the other side of the river? And the frog said, no. He said, you'll sting me and kill me. And the scorpion said, no, think about it. Mr. Frog, if I'm on your back and you get me out in the middle of the river, I can't swim. If I sting you, then I would die. Frog thought about that for a minute, and he said, yeah, okay, sure, jump on. So he jumps on, starts swimming across, and about halfway across, he feels a sting in his back, and he realizes the scorpion has stung him. And he says, what are you doing? We're both going to die. And the scorpion says, I didn't have any choice. It's my nature. I think that's really kind of profound. Yeah, they both die. All right, it's sad, I know that. But part of the reason why does Satan behave the way he does is it is the nature of evil to destroy. It is the nature of evil to oppress. It is the nature of evil. And when you see those things happening, they are partaking of the nature of evil. It is the nature of evil to deceive and accuse and destroy. Okay, that was long-winded, but I hope you like that story. Tell it to your kids tonight. I think they'll really encourage them a lot. <laughs> I think the moral is don't trust anybody. Okay, never mind. Just let's not go there. Okay, a couple of questions about the different views. What did the Christians of John's day understand Revelation to mean? And then along those same lines, can you just give a brief chronology of the views of Revelation in church history? As Yes, good question. I don't know that I can give you a very good chronology of the views in church history. I mean, it really has gone around. I'll try and give you a really brief synopsis. But back to the original Christians. How did they understand this? First of all, they knew it was apocalyptic. I want to make this point to you. They knew it was apocalyptic literature. They knew it was intended to be symbolic. They knew there was a message from God here, but that it was written in a way that they needed to understand the symbols. And they typically did understand the symbols. What message did they get out of it? Whatever they thought about when this was going to happen, they knew the, ba and this is what everybody agrees on, is that Satan, in the form of the Roman Empire, in their case, in the form of other things in our life, he said, Satan is trying to destroy you. But here's the true nature of reality. Satan's not on the throne. I show you a vision in heaven. God is on the throne. And by the way, we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And no matter what they do to you, 
repeat it over and over. No matter what that happens to you, you will be raised from the dead. You will live with God forever. And so take heart, be faithful. That's what they got out of the book of Revelation. It appears, futurists will tell you that the earliest that we can tell, people were futurists. They saw this as talking about the future. Symbolic point of view will tell you, if that's the case, then it wasn't much use to anybody. It, why would you and I even read it? It's not gonna happen for who knows how long. The truth of it is, it may indeed be talking about some specific events in the future, but Christians have always understood this to refer to them. It's only in recent times that we've quit reading Revelation. We just think it's too hard to understand. Christians who've been persecuted have read it all through 2,000 years. So, how's the views gone? Let's say that the futurists are right and early people were futurists. Then let's go to the reformers, Calvin and Luther. They're historicists. They're historicists for several reasons, but one of them is the bad guy in the historicist point of view, you're going to see this next week, is the Catholic Church. It, the Catholic Church is the bad guy. From about 500 A.D. all the way to 1500 in the Reformation, all this, they understood, this is all telling you that the Catholic Church is bad. It's not good. The Pope's going to be the Antichrist next week. Well, if you're a historicist, if you're a futurist, you get some other choices. But basically, they thought it was all about the Catholic Church. So the historicist view was very popular amongst the Protestants. Well, the Catholics are like, hey, we've got to have a competing vision here. And so some Catholic theologians got together and said, no, 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 that's not what Revelation means. It's a futurist point of view, right? So then the futurist point of view. Come on into the 20th century, you see more of a symbolic understanding. Again, everybody thinks this happens. The question is, well, when is it going to happen? Symbolic says, wait a minute, this is beautifully written. This sure looks like it's trying to tell us something that's happened over and over again throughout time. It's trying to give us some key basic ideas, which everyone would agree that those ideas are there. So that gained a bit of an ascendance. But in the late 1800s, uh, there's this dispensational way of looking at the scriptures. And that's all I'll say about that for the moment, because it's, it's a really interesting big topic. A dispensational way of looking at the scriptures. And it had it, its implication for revelation was that the Jews were a big part of this. Then you get into the 20th century and you get that theology expressed in the Left Behind series, which was a wildly popular way of explaining what revelation means. That was a futurist view. And so today, futurist view is the most popular, probably, view. Symbolic views kind of coming on, historicists not so much, preterists, diehards. But they're probably running forth right now. So good question. When did Satan fall? Was it before Adam and Eve or after? When did Satan fall? Was it before Adam and Eve or after? A lot of debate about this because if, if you can't, haven't already figured this out, one of the things about Revelation is, is time does not seem to be a big deal. By the way, that's one of the big differences between a futurist and a symbolic. Futurist says, and I respect both of these points of view, but this will help you understand the difference. A future says, when you read chapters 4 through 19, first of all, you should assume that things are happening in the order that they are being told here. Symbolic says, nah, there are flashbacks, there's all kinds of things going on here. In other words, they don't have to have happened in this order. The visions happened in this order, but what the visions are talking about doesn't have to be linear. So future says linear, symbolic says, nah, let's mix it up. Future says everything here should be taken literally unless you must take it symbolically. So in other words, there are certain things that futures take symbolically here. Uh, we've seen that they think that some of these things are the result of a nuclear weapon, so that is a symbol of a nuclear war. But in general, they like to take everything literally. Symbolic says it's apocalyptic literature. You should take everything as a symbol unless you must take it literally. And so they just approach this very differently, and that's why you see that. So when did Satan fall is a chronological question. And so depending on your view, you're going to answer that a little bit differently. Make sense? Satan falls, if you're a futurist, in the middle of the tribulation. He's unleashed upon the earth to come down to the earth, and he's cast out. He comes down to the earth and starts granting mayhem. Satan is cast out from a symbolic view. You get some different opinions, but Jesus says this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. Is he talking about what happened at the cross and Satan was cast out and bound up? Or is he talking about 
what's going to happen at the end. And people have two different opinions. Some people think Satan's cast out and bound at the cross. He's done. He's defeated. He's still trying to win on the earth, but he's out. Others would say, no, God is going to tolerate this until the tribulation. Um, so there are a lot of different answers to that. And the problem is it's a chronological question. And Revelation, really not very clear about the chronology. It's a good question. Well, let me finish with this. One of the fundamental themes here, I want to give you just a lesson to take from this, other than the Satan hates you and is trying to destroy you. I mean, we got that going for us, right? I want you to take this. Listen to the basic message here, is that despite all the trials in your life, you have the assurance that God will bring us through them. He will not always save us from hardship. He will always bring us through hardship. And how do we get through it? What do we do? What's our job? It's the same as those two witnesses. How we live in the face of adversity is how we overcome evil. I want to say that again. I want you to think about this. This is all through the Bible. This isn't just Revelation. How you and I live, are we going to be faithful to God even in the face of things we do not understand? And we do not know why this is happening. And we don't know where cancer comes from. And we don't know why people have to suffer. And we don't know why people do such evil things to each other. But the fact that we are faithful and we trust God in the midst of this is how we overcome. That's what this is talking about. Those two witnesses, they don't understand why this is happening. They just know that God told me to go tell people, repent, you can live. And that's, that's the exact task that he gave to you and me. How we live our lives is indeed how we testify to, this, to the overcoming power of God. Well, next time, we're still in the interlude, and we're still talking about Satan. Satan is about to kick it into high gear. Next week, you're going to meet the Antichrist and the false prophet. Satan wants to be God, so he's going to need to make his own little trinity. And so next week, you meet the unholy trinity, and we'll introduce you to the Antichrist. See you next time.